All right, all right. We're going to start with consciousness. Um, this isn't really an... No, I'm not going to try and even make an introduction, but thanks for listening to my podcast. Or whatever this is. Um, so consciousness, it's one's level of awareness of both the world and one's own existence within that world. Um, they have states which are alertness, sleep, dreaming, and altered states of consciousness. So sleep and dreaming are also sometimes considered altered states, but we'll consider them separately from like hypnosis, meditation, and drug-induced altered states of consciousness. Um, you can also get altered states of consciousness from sickness, dementia, delirium, and coma. So let's start with alertness. It's a state of consciousness in which we are awake and able to think. We're able to perceive, process, access, and verbalize information. We have a certain level of physiological arousal, which is characterized by physiological reactions like increased heart rate, breathing rate, blood pressure, and so on. Cortisol levels tend to be higher, and electroencephalogram EEG waves indicate a brain in the waking state. Alertness is maintained by neurological circuits in the prefrontal cortex at the very front of the brain. Fibers from the prefrontal cortex communicate with the reticular formation, which is the reticular activation system, um, which is a neural structure located in the brainstem, to keep the cortex awake and alert. A brain injury that results in disruption of these connections results in coma. Um, sleep is important to consider. Um, Long-term sleep deprivation can be linked with diminished cognitive performance and the development of chronic diseases like diabetes and obesity. Um, sleep has different stages, so sleep is studied by recording brainwave activity occurring during the course of a night's sleep. This is done with electroencephalograms B or EEG, which is a record of the average of the electrical patterns with different within different portions of the brain. There's four characteristic EEG patterns with different stages of waking and sleeping, beta, alpha, theta, and delta waves. There's also a fifth wave that corresponds to REM sleep, which is the time during the night when we have most of our dreams. And these sleep stages form a complete cycle lasting about 90 minutes. So beta and alpha waves characterize brainwave activity when we are awake and we are um, alert. So Beta waves have a high frequency and occur when the person is alert or attending to a mental task that requires concentration. They occur when neurons are randomly firing, and then alpha waves occur when we are awake but relaxing with our eyes closed and are somewhat slower than beta waves, and they're more synchronized than beta waves. Um, and then when you doze off, you enter stage 1, which is NREM1, which is detected by the EEG of, through the appearance of theta waves. EEG activity is characterized by irregular waveforms with slower frequencies and higher voltages. As you fall more deeply into sleep, you enter stage 2, NREM2. The EEG shows these waves um, as theta waves with sleep spindles, which are bursts of high-frequency waves, and K-complexes, which are singular high-amplitude waves, shown in figure 4.8. Oops, don't know why I read that. And then as you fall even more deeply asleep, you enter stage 3. NREM3, which is known as slow wave sleep, or SWS, EEG activity grows progressively slower until only a few sleep waves per second are seen. These low-frequency, high-voltage sleep waves are called delta waves, and during this stage, rousing someone from sleep becomes exceptionally difficult, and it has been associated with cognitive recovery and memory consolidation and increased growth hormone release. Um, the stages above are called non-rapid eye movement sleep, which is why they are NREM and interspersed between cycles of the NREM stages is rapid eye movement, REM sleep. In REM sleep, arousal levels reach that of wakefulness, but the muscles are paralyzed. It's also called paradoxical sleep because one's heart rate, breathing patterns, and EEG mimic wakefulness, but the individual is still asleep. Um, this is the stage in which dreaming is most likely to occur and is also associated with memory consolidation, and REM is more with procedural memory consolidation and SWS with declarative memory consolidation. So, the sequential order of these brainwaves is 
theta, alpha, theta, delta. So bat D. So bat sleeps during the day. Um, so sleep cycles. Sleep cycle is a single complete progression through the sleep stages. The makeup of the sleep cycle changes during the course of the night. Um, early in the nights, SWS predominates as the brain falls into deep sleep and then into more wakeful states. Later in the night, REM sleep predominates. And then over the lifespan, the length of the sleep cycle increases from approximately 50 minutes to 90 minutes um, from children to adults. And children also spend more time in SWS than adults. Um, changes to sleep cycles can, from disrupted sleep or disordered work schedules can cause health problems. Um, disruption of SWS and REM can result in dis diminished memory. Sleep deprivation also causes diminished cognitive performance, although the person who is sleep deprived is unlikely to recognize that performance has been subpar. Sleep deprivation also negatively affects mood, problem solving, and motor skills. Um, our daily cycle of waking and sleeping is regulated by internally generated rhythms of, or circadian rhythms. So in humans and anim animals, the circadian rhythm approximates a 24-hour cycle that is affected by like external cues like light. Biochemical signals underlie these circadian rhythms, so sleepiness can be attributed to blood levels of melatonin, which is a serotonin-derived hormone from the pineal gland. Um, there's also the retina with direct, conne direct connections to the hypothalamus, which controls the pineal gland, so decreasing light can cause the release of melatonin. Melatonin mellows you out. Um, cortisol gets you up with the sun. Soul. Cortisol. Sun. Okay. I'll stop. Um, but yeah, cortisol is a steroid hormone produced in the adrenal cortex and is related to the sleep-wake cycle. It slowly increases its levels during early morning because increasing light causes the release of corticotropin-releasing factor, or CRF, in the hypothalamus. CRF causes release of the adrenocorticotropic hormone, ACTH, from the anterior pituitary, which stimulates cortisol release. And cortisol contributes to wakefulness. So, dreaming. Um... Ancient Egyptians believed that dreams were messages sent from the supernatural world to tell of future events, and the Greeks believed that they were purposed to carry messages from the gods, but the dream required the help of a priest to interpret, and so they've always been a kind of fantasy of people. Uh, most dreaming occurs during REM, and then as soon as we enter, as soon after we enter the stage two sleep, our mental experience shifts to a dreamlike stage. Um, the, throughout the night, approximately 75% of dreaming occurs during REM, and REM dreams tend to be longer and more vivid than those during NREM. So, a few theories have been proposed about the purpose and meaning of dreams. So, in the activation synthesis story theory, dreams are caused by widespread random activation of neural circuitry, and this activation can mimic incoming sensory information um, and consist of pieces of stored memories, current and previous desires, met and unmet needs, and other experiences. The cortex then tries to stitch this unrelated information together, resulting in a dream that is both bizarre and kind of familiar. In the problem-solving dream theory, dreams are a way to solve problems while you're sleeping, so they're untethered by the rules of the real world and they allow interpretation of obstacles differently than during waking hours. And then, in the cognitive process dream theory, dreams are just the sleeping counterpart of dream consciousness. So, there's that. Um... The study of dreaming is limited by the difference between the brain and the mind, so dreaming must have a neurological component, but it's really subjective. Uh, neurocognitive models of dreaming seek to unify biological and psychological perspectives on dreaming by correlating the subjective cognitive experience of dreaming with measurable physiological changes. Um, so then we have sleep-wake disorders. They're divided into two categories, dysomnias and parasomnias. Dysomnia refers to disorders that make it difficult to fall asleep, stay asleep, or avoid sleep, and include insomnia, narcolepsy, and sleep apnea. Parasomnias are abnormal movements or behaviors during sleep and include night terrors and sleepwalking. 
and most of these sleep-wake disorders really occur during NREM sleep. So insomnia is difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep. It's the most common, and it's related to anxiety, depression, medications, or disruption of sleep cycles and circadian rhythms. Narcolepsy is a condition characterized by lack of voluntary control over the onset of sleep. The symptoms are unique and include cataplexy, which is a loss of muscle control and subtle, sudden <coughs> and sudden intrusion of REM sleep during waking hours caused by an emotional trigger. Sleep paralysis is a sensation of being unable to move despite being awake. And then hypnagogic, hypnagogic, oh my god, hypnagogic and hypnopompic hallucinations are hallucinations when going to sleep or awakening. There's also sleep apnea, which is an inability to breathe during sleep. So they awaken during the night in order to breathe, and they there's two variations, which is either obstructive or central. <coughs> Sorry. Obstructive sleep apnea occurs when a physical blockage in the pharynx or trachea prevents airflow, and central sleep apnea occurs when the brain fails to send signal to the diaphragm to breathe. Then there are night terrors, which are the most common in children. There are periods of intense anxiety that occur during slow-wave sleep. Children can thrash and scream during these terrors and will show signs of sympathetic overdrive with a high heart rate and rapid breathing. Um, and because they occur during SWS, it's really hard to wake them up and they don't remember the dream when the next morning. Uh, sleepwalking or somnambulism also occurs during SWS. You might eat, talk, have sex, or drive while sleeping with no recollection of the event, and they return to their beds and awake in the morning with no knowledge of their nighttime activities. And awakening them will not really harm them, and it's suggested to quietly guide them back to bed to, bed to avoid disturbing their SWS. Um, oh, I forgot to mention this, but hypnagogic hallucinations occur when one is going to bed. Hypnagogic. Maybe that's how you pronounce it. Um, and then hypnopompic hallucinations occur when one is popping up out of bed. So sleep deprivation can result from as little as one night without sleep or from multiple nights with poor quality short duration sleep. Sleep deprivation results in irritability, mood disturbances, decreased performance, and slowed reaction time. Extreme deprivation can cause psychosis, and while one cannot make up for lost sleep, people who are permitted to sleep normally after sleep deprivation often exhibit REM rebound and an earlier onset and great duration of REM sleep compared to normal. Um, hypnosis can be defined as a state in which a person appears to be in control of his or her normal functions but in a highly suggestible state so they can easily succumb to the suggestions of others and it starts with hypnotic induction which the hypnotist seeks to relax the subject and increase the subject's level of concentration then they can suggest perceptions or actions to the hypnotized person um, it's not the same as its sensationalized version in the media so you can't like really snap your fingers and someone will exhibit bizarre behavior but it's really been used successfully for pain control psychological therapy memory enhancement weight loss and smoking cessation so brain imaging has indicated that hypnotic states are indeed real, um, and they require a willingness, willing, willingness, personality, and lack of skepticism. Um, meditation is a little bit tricky. Um, it has been a central practice in the religions of Buddhism, Hinduism, Taoism, Judaism, and others, and it involves quieting of the mind for some purpose, whether spiritual, religious, or related distress reduction. Um, in Western tradition. Meditation is used for counseling and psychotherapy because it produces a sense of relaxation and relief from anxiety and worry. Um, so it causes physiological changes like decreased heart rate and blood pressure and on the EEG it resembles stage 1 sleep with theta and slow alpha waves. Next we're going to go into consciousness altering drugs. So there are psychoactive drugs like there's four different groups of them. There's depressants, stimulants, opiates, and hallucinogen hallucinogens. Um, marijuana has depressant, stimulant, 
effect and hallucinogenic effects, and it can be a whole different ballgame. So depressants reduce nervous system activity, and they result in a sense of relaxation and reduce anxiety. So alcohol is the most common. Uh, there's also sedatives or downers, which calm and induce sleep. So alcohol has different effects and increases the activity of the GABA receptor, a chloride channel that causes hyperpolarization. My gosh, hyperpolarization of the membrane. Um, this hyperpolarization causes generalized brain inhibition at the psychological, at the physiological level, resulting in diminished arousal at moderate doses. So changes in brain activity can also cause changes in outward behavior. So excessive consumption of alcohol can be associated with a notable lack of self-control, known as disinhibition, which occurs because the centers of the brain that prevent inappropriate behavior are depressed. Alcohol can also increase dopamine levels, um, causing mild euphoria, and at higher doses it becomes more um, disruption to brain activity and logical reasoning and motor skills are affected and fatigue may result. Um, so one of the main effects on logical reasoning is the inability to recognize consequences of actions, creating a short-sighted view of the world called alcohol myopia. Bet you didn't know that. Um, alcohol use is implicated in many automobile accidents, homicides for both the perpetrator and the victim, and hospital admissions. Intoxication is also measured with blood alcohol level. Um, it's one of the most widely abused drugs. Alcoholism rates tend to be higher for those of lower SES, but low SES alcoholics tend to enter recovery sooner and at higher rates. It can run in families, and children of alcoholics are going to suffer from major depressive disorder, most likely. And then long-term consequences of alcoholism include cirrhosis and liver failure, pancreatic damage, gastric or duodenal ulcers, gastrointestinal cancer, and brain disorders like Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome caused by a deficiency of thiamine and K-vitamin B1. And it's characterized by severe memory impairment with changes in mental status and loss of motor skills. How exciting. Don't do it. Sedatives tend to depress central nervous system activity, resulting in feelings of calm, relaxation, and drowsiness. Two types of sedatives are barbiturate barbiturates and benzodiazepines. So barbiturates were historically used as anxiety-reducing or anxiolytic in sleep medications, but they've been replaced by benzodiazepines, which are less prone to overdose. So barbiturates include imobarbital and phenobarbital. Benzodiazepines include al alprazolam, lorazepam, diazepam, and clonazepam. So these drugs increase GABA activity, causing a sense of relaxation, and they can be highly addictive. So if you take them with alcohol, um, they could really release result in coma or death. So then we have stimulants. So they cause an increase in arousal of the nervous system. Self-explanatory. Um, each drug increases the frequency of action potentials, but does it by different mechanisms. So first we've got amphetamines. Um, they cause increased arousal by increasing release of dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin at the synapse and decreasing their reuptake. So this increases arousal and causes a reduction in appetite and decreased need for sleep. Physiological effects include an increase in heart rate and blood pressure. Psychological effects include euphoria, hypervigilance, or being on edge, anxiety, delusions of grandeur, and paranoia. And then prolonged use of high doses of amphetamines can result in stroke or brain damage. Users suffer from withdrawal after discontinuation, leading to depression, fatigue, and irritability. Then we've got cocaine, which originates from the cocoa plant, one of the high-altitude regions of South America. Cocaine can be purified from these leaves or created synthetically, and then it acts on dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin synapses, but cocaine decreases reuptake of the neurotransmitters instead. So the effects of cocaine intoxication and withdrawal are therefore similar to amphetamines. It also has anesthetic and vasoconstrictive properties and is therefore sometimes used in surgeries in highly vascularized areas such as the nose and throat. These vasoconstrictive properties can lead to heart attacks and strokes when used recreationally, and crack is a form of cocaine that can be smoked with quick and potent effects. It can be really, really addictive. Then we have ecstasy, aka 3,4-methyl 
methylene dioxy and methylamphetamine, aka MDMA. Um, ecstasy or E, I've never heard it as that, um, acts as a hallucinogen combined with an amphetamine. It is a designer amphetamine. Its mechanism and effects are similar to other amphetamines. Physiologically, it causes increased heart rate, increased blood pressure, blurry vision, sweating, nausea, and hyperthermia. Psychologically, it causes euphoria, increased alertness, and an overwhelming sense of well-being and connectedness. So it's a club or a rave drug, and it's packaged in colorful pills. Then we've got opiates and opioids. So they're types of narcotics, also known as painkillers. They are derived from the poppy plant. Opium has been used and abused for centuries. Um, naturally occurring form called opiates include morphine and codeine, semi-synthetic derivatives called opioids. Oh, naturally occurring are opiates, semi-synthetic are opioids. So, um, they include oxycodone, hydrocodone, and heroin. These compounds bind to opioid receptors in peripheral and central nervous system, and they act as endorphin uh, agonists and cause a decreased reaction to pain and a sense of euphoria. So, overdose can cause death by respiratory suppression in which the brain stops sending signals to breathe. Heroin, or diacetylmorphine, was originally created as a substitute for morphine, and then once injected, the body rapidly metabolizes, metabolizes heroin to morphine, morphine. And when smoked or injected, heroin was really the most widely abused opioid, and this designation has shifted to prescription opioids like oxycodone and hydrocodone. So treatment for opioid addiction may include the use of methadone, a long-acting opioid with lower risk of um, overdose. Hallucinogens are drugs which typically cause introspection, distortion of reality, and fantasy and enhancement of sensory experiences. Physiologic effects include increased heart rate and blood pressure, dilution of pupils, sweating, and increased body temperature. There is the lovely LSD, aka lysergic acid diethylamide. Um, there's also peyote, mescaline, ketamine, and psilocybin containing mushrooms. The exact mechanism is unknown, but it's a complex interaction between various neurotransmitters, especially serotonin. And it's often sold on colorful paper, so it's like a club drug. And then we have marijuana. Um, it's the leaves and flowers of two plant species, cannabis sativa and cannabis indica. It has been the subject of many news reports. Legal status. That's not really, I don't think, relevant. But it's been used for centuries within the, with the earliest known accounts originating from 3 BCE. <coughs> So the active chemical in marijuana is known as tetrahydrocannabinol, THC. It exerts its effects by acting as cannabinoid receptors, glycine receptors, and opioid receptors. Um, these receptors interact to create the high achieved from marijuana, but that's really unknown. But THC inhibits GABA activity and indirectly increases dopamine activity, causing pleasure. Physiological effects are really mixed. So there's eye redness, dry mouth, fatigue, impairment of short-term memory, increased heart rate, increased appetite, lowered blood pressure, and... Like I said before, it falls in a stimulant, depressant, and hallucinogen category. So drug addiction is related to the mesolimbic, mesolimbic reward pathway, one of four dopaminergic pathways in the brain. This includes the nucleus acumen, acumen, oh my gosh. This pathway includes the nucleus accumbens, the ventral tegmental area, and the connection between them called the medial forebrain bundle. This pathway is normally involved in motivation and emotional response, and its activation accounts for the positive reinforcement of substance use. This addiction pathway is activated by all substances that produce psychological dependence. Gambling and falling in love also can activate this. Um, <coughs> sorry. Jeez, I'll stop.
Um, I can go over attention. So attention refers to concentrating on one aspect in the sensory environment or a sensorium. The definition is straightforward, but the mechanism is a little bit unclear. So there is selective attention. You can focus on one part of the sensorium while ignoring other stimuli, ignoring other stimuli. So it acts as a filter between sensory stimuli and our processing systems. If a stimulus is attended to, it's passed through a filter and analyzed further. If it's not, it's lost. Um, so there is the cocktail party phenomenon, um, where you are engaged in a conversation in a party and presumably paying attention, but you are able to perceive your name being mentioned um, halfway across the room. So selective attention is probably more of a filter that allows us to focus on one thing while allowing other stimuli to be processed in the background. And then if the other stimuli is really particularly important, then we shift our attention to them. So dichotic listening tests are designed to test selective attention. Um, you can be given headphones that have distinct auditory stimuli going to each ear, and then they're asked to pay attention to either or both. And then they're asked to repeat out loud what they heard in the attended ear, which is termed shadowing. This tests selective attention because participants are asked to filter out information from the unattended ear. Um, yeah. There's divided attention, which is the ability to perform multiple tasks at the same time. So most newer complex tasks require undivided attention and utilize controlled or effortful processing. Um, familiar or routine actions can be performed with automatic processing, which permits the brain to focus on other tasks with divided attention. So like learning to drive. And I think I will stop there and we will pick up um, with language, finish off language and do our concept summary in the next episode. Thanks for listening.